Hello again and welcome to the Llama podcast from San Francisco, California. I'm Peter Bowes and Llama, Live Long and Master Aging is where we explore the science and stories behind human longevity. Today I've come to the offices of Human, that's HVMN, formerly Nutribox, the supplement company, to find out what motivates the guys here to dedicate themselves to biohacking. Indeed, what is biohacking? This is certainly no ordinary company. The employees here have all committed themselves to a weekly fast. They go without food for 36 hours, doing it all together, and they're part of a growing online community of like-minded people who believe in the beneficial effects of fasting. It's called WeFast. They're also meticulous self-experimenters, tracking their blood sugar levels, for example, and monitoring many other biomarkers during the week. I'm joined by the CEO and founder, Jeffrey Wu. Hi, Jeffrey. Hey, thanks for having me, Peter. I did describe you just now as a supplement company. I think the word supplement might be a little bit misleading to some people. What, what is your preferred description of your company? So I like to think of our company as a biohacking or human enhancement company. And what that means is applying engineering principles to the human body. So if you look at like a computer company like Apple, for, for, as an example, we think that they really practice and organize you know, the hobbyist community around computing. So if you think about the 70s and 80s during the homebrew computing club era, a lot of people were tinkering with computer parts and that enabled a huge, really a new paradigm of how we think and live our lives around computing. We think that same opportunity is happening now within the space of biohacking, people tinkering with the inputs and outputs into the human system. So I would say that supplements is almost a little bit too narrow for our ambition here, where supplements I see as just one input into the human system. We are trying to essentially look at, can we reprogram humanity for it to be a better, more optimal versions of ourselves? And when you talk about this experiment, it's the human body that is the platform for this engineering, this bioengineering experiment. Yes. Yeah. I, you know, we fundamentally believe that humans will be the next platform of innovation. Again, wearing the engineer's hat, during the 70s till, you know, up till now, we had a ton of different hardware innovations and sensors built on top of the computing platform, on top of silicon. So you have, if you look at the mobile device, it's, you know, the iPhone, for example, the front-facing camera enabled selfie apps like Snapchat, the back-facing camera enabled things like Instagram, beautiful photos, uh, GPS enabled, you know, ride-sharing applications. Well, if you look at the recent years, really my iPhone 7 is pretty similar to my iPhone 5 and to my iPhone 3. But where sensors are really exploding is on the human body. You know, I'm actually wearing a continuous glucose monitor right now, so I get to see my blood sugar levels evolve every, you know, 5, 10, 15 minutes. Um, I just thought it was your impressive biceps there, but there is an extra bulk underneath <laughs> yeah. your shirt. There. Yeah, there's a little uh, quasi-implant, if you will, where there's a small subcutaneous needle that basically tracks my blood sugar levels. And that's and exactly what I just referred to, yeah. of monitoring your, your glucose yeah. levels. Is this a permanent fixture for you? We replace it every two weeks. Um, so a lot of the employees and also community members at Nutribox, which, you know, is, 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 was our former name moving into HVMN, pronounced human, we're really speaking towards all of biohacking, not just nootropics. Because I think our community and our ambitions have really you know, broadened since we first started the business two, three years ago. And that name change, just to be clear, I mentioned Nutribox to start with. Right. That's, that's taking place this week. Yeah, so well, early sneak peek as we uh, 
unveil the the new identity of our business, where we started off in the space of nootropics, which are cognitive enhancers, and then we realized that we really quickly became really flying the banner of can we manipulate human inputs and outputs for more optimal performance, and that really encompasses all different types of biometrics, not just cognition, but physical and metabolic performance. Hence, identity change to HVMN human. So let's go back to some of the basics then, just to explain. You, you've already thrown tons of fascinating stuff <laughs> at me, but let's start by talking about what nootropics or nootropics, as people here say. Right. I would say nootropics. Right. What is a drug like this? Yes. Yeah, so if you just look at the word itself, nootropics, neuro means relating to the mind, tropic things that benefit or enhance the mind. Um, so nootropics are compounds, substances, some are considered drugs, some are considered food, some are considered supplements that enhance various aspects of cognition. So things that can improve learning rates, things that build up the neurotransmitter levels for more optimal uh, learning or, or reaction times. Those are all considered nootropics. And how do you go about formulating the recipes? On what sort of research and what sort of clinical studies are products like this based on? When we first looked at the space a couple of years ago, there were a lot of hobbyists that were already just experimenting with all sorts of different compounds from Russian Alzheimer drugs to perhaps, you know, scheduled illegal drugs to different supplements. And it was sort of a wild west of a community. And I personally was thought it was like just an interesting place to just understand and learn because I think, like a lot of other people in Silicon Valley, I wanted to be a smarter, more productive version of myself. Um, and then, but I was also initially very skeptical. Having a free lunch of being smarter, it always is like, hmm, what is the catch here? So I think what was interesting from our approach was really coming in from a skeptic's perspective and then diving into the white paper clinical research trials uh, done in this space. You know, I quickly saw that, hey, there's some signal here where there's actually interesting statistical significant effects of different combinations of nootropics, some more robust than others. And that's where it's seated, where we, there's a whole universe of things that people are trying. There were a certain subset of that that had strong randomized controlled trials done on healthy humans, not on sick humans, because that's a very different use case. And the market there was not very transparent and we wanted to make sure that, you know, if I was going to try some of these things myself personally, I had to like figure out, okay, are these things safe? Are these things what they claim they are? Are we accidentally poisoning ourselves with heavy metal on accident? And I had some of those initial questions that I wanted to solve and no one else was really solving that. So we ended up building the company to build the service that we wanted for our nootropics. And you're making these observations with a background in computer science. Yes. Not, not as a biologist. Yes. Or as a doctor indeed. No, not no formal medical or physiology training, but at this point have self-taught and been learning from some of the best in, in the space. We have doctors and PhDs on our team now. And my question, and you raised it, was yeah. obviously the first one probably anyone thinks about is safety. Yeah. When you're looking at how these drugs, these compounds are formulated, what right. in terms of any control of the kind of things that you can do and that you can sell right. exists in this field? Good question. So I think when people talk about nootropics, it's really an umbrella term for, you know, diff so I would say like there's 
a scientific academic understanding of what nootropics are. And then there's how these things are legislated or regulated. So everything that we consume does have to go through FDA uh, certification, whether through a food or as a drug. You know, all the products that we sell under Nutribox are FDA generally regarded as safe, meaning that they have low side effect profiles and can be used in the food supply, essentially. So basically, only look at compounds within that GRAS list, G-R-A-S, general regard to safe list, and then focus on things that have the strongest effects. And then two, apply, you know, multiple audits to make sure that the purity is at the, the level that, you know, we're claiming that there's no uh, adulterants that happen to go in the supply chain. And we actually open source all those certificates of analysis, which is what they're called, just showing exactly the amount of heavy metal, microbiological potential contamination, etc. It's on GitHub, so you can actually just check every single batch. And where do these drugs fall into the field of longevity and living a longer, better life, which is the focus of what we talk about on this podcast? You are talking, to some extent, about living a better life today and tomorrow, and maybe not necessarily in 30 years' time, because who knows how things are going to progress. Or is longevity part of your thinking? Longevity is definitely part of the thinking. Um, I actually feel like there's a false dichotomy, if you will, between what is traditionally what is called medicine, which is bring people from sick states to normal states, right? The definition of medicine is prevention, treatment, diagnose, diagnostics of disease. Diseases are de- deficient states. And, and then providing you, the Band-Aid. Right. And then you have a little bit of a more amorphous area where we all know that there's states of humans that are healthier than normal, right? Like the normal definition is actually a very malleable one if you actually look at history. Like it's very normal to live for 30 years if you were a caveman. Now the definition of having a normal lifespan is like 70 years. And I imagine that, you know, I, I don't think it's a stretch of our imaginations that the definition of normal will continue to increase across all different types of metrics. So I really see these as two sides of the same coin. So things that improve your baseline cognition, specifically how like, our, you know, the nootropics that we focus on, we are trying to increase the neurotransmitter levels, the, the precursors for them. So you can function properly more optimally on a day-to-day basis but the some of the strongest results are over long-term consistent use right so one of our components in the rise stack uh, has been shown to elevate brain-derived neurotrophic factor right and, and that's one of the key peptides that increases neuron growth just explain a bit more you say the rise stack what is that so rise is a product name and in the nootropics industry or, or the community stacks as a way to describe combinations of compounds okay. that are synergistic in, in some way. And this is something that you would take in the morning? Yeah. So, you know, for my personal regimen, I'll have RISE and then Kato 3, which is our, uh, what we call our supercharged omega-3 product, where f- obviously omega-3s have a broad swath of data around, you know, that the well-known diet yeah. uh, is overweight on omega-6 versus omega-3, so we mm-hmm. need to elevate our omega-3 levels. But there's actually two types of omega-3s, EPA and DHA. EPA is more associated with cardiovascular health, and we really ramp up the ratio of DHA, which is associated with cognitive function. So that product we look at as not just for a short-term gain, but it's really providing the brain and the neurons with the right building blocks for long-term sustained performance and health. And since you do this and you use these products yourself, are you firmly convinced 
yourself that you're using something that you can't get from food because food is the only other real source yeah. uh, apart from what the body produces right. itself and our regular metabolisms right. but food is the only other source sure. of nutrients and vitamins yeah. and the essential components that we need and traditionally have used right. to live whether it's a long healthy yep. life or a curtailed life yeah. through illness you believe that what you're adding to the status quo is beneficial I think, again, I think food, supplement, drug, they're all artificial terms for what are just inputs into the digestive system of humans, right? Again, from like the engineer's mind, there are different input channels into the human body that we understand, right? And digestion, our digestive tract is one of the major ways that we can take an input, right? Like there's obviously other sensors that we have, our eyes, our nose. I mean, we can perhaps directly stimulate our brain through emerging transcranial direct stimulation devices. So a food, a drug, a, su a supplement. I mean, I think, if you, again, if you look back historically, drugs were just like, kind of like special foods that people would take. I think there's more and more of a bias in, in, in even modern doctors looking at food as like one of the primary medicines that people are taking consistently on a daily basis, right? So and, and you might actually get some people arguing that certain foods are more akin to poisons yeah, in the way that they're yeah, used. Absolutely, which is why I think there's a lot of interesting debate right now with why are all these metabolic syndromes skyrocketing, diabetes, obesity, etc. So if we take the, the notion that we're just looking at everything that we intake as just inputs, well, clearly foods themselves therefore can be optimized for certain outcomes. And from that, if we cannot get it through easily readily available food sources, then we need to add quote unquote supplements or different inputs to make up for gaps or to increase the ratios of things that we want to increase more. Right? I think it's very, it's well accepted that if you're trying to train to be a professional wrestler or a bodybuilder, it's going to look very different from trying to train to be an endurance athlete that's running a hundred miles, right? So people are already shifting their diets to optimize our certain use cases from a physical performance level, why don't we have the same rigor applying to cognitive performance? And how do you feel? How long have you been using these products? And uh, essentially, how has it changed you? Yeah, um, I feel looking into yourself, right? Like it's hard to benchmark against yourself, but I think... I suppose it's maybe difficult to say, well, how would I feel if I hadn't been taken at this sure. stage in my life? Yeah, knowing what but, I but what, what I will say, because I, I think I like to just make claims based on like rigorous data, not like N equals one anecdotal stories. But if we go into the anecdotal level, I think people see that we put in pretty long, like very long sustained hours of productivity on a daily basis and which is the silicon valley way yeah in in a way and and i think doing a way that's you know super productive and i think um that's just from a subjective like other people looking at us as being like super productive and on point for like longer periods of time than they would expect but from a, a on a more biometric based level as we were tracking all of these biometrics with the continuous glucose monitor, with some of like the reaction time tests, yeah, we're seeing interesting results where like, you know, one thing that we think is really interesting is glucose and ketones. And then I think we could probably talk a little bit about what, what that, that all is mm. all about, but how fast my body can shift its metabolic state and like seeing that, hey, like I can adapt faster than before. So in short, Subjectively, I think there's a lot of just like I'm getting a lot of positive feedback that we're more 
productive than what seems to be the norm, but on an objective scale, that's what we actually want to focus more and more towards our as a really a core part of biohacking. I understand totally your reservations about anecdotal evidence right. versus statistical evidence right. and clinical evidence. Yet, it's the kind of evidence that resonates with yeah. people. To be able to say that I feel tremendously better now from a cognitive perspective yeah. than I did, let's say, three years ago, yeah. maybe when I was in a different phase of my life. Right. But I can actually see how I'm dealing with my life on, right. a, on a daily basis that is different now to what it was before. Yeah. And as you say, I think they resonate right. and do have meaning for people because right. after all, it is about how we feel and perform yep. every day. Yeah. I mean, I think, again, like I don't think people keep doing behaviors if it's like pointless, right? Like we're very good at like being lazy if things aren't working for us. So I think, you know, I feel like I have much better stamina both mentally and physically to just power through longer hours and just sort of outgrind other people that might be competitors or just other people in the space. And I suppose the next stage then, let, let's take the other point of view that if we're looking purely scientifically sure. at this, and yeah. it, maybe it's all in your mind that you right. feel great and you're more right. productive. What about the peer-reviewed evidence, the yep. clinical evidence that what you're saying actually has a basis in science yes. to produce these results? So yeah. Is there such evidence? Yes. So... Actually, if you go on to our website, we actually have like what's called our biohacker guide that really just lists out all the different clinical trials done on each of the core components of our nootropic stacks. So for RISE, again, you know, one of the key components there is this compound, Bacopa Maniri. And there's an interesting group out of uh, Swinburne University down in Australia. Professor Constow runs the psychopharmacology department down there. And they have really interesting results where over a six-week period versus placebo, folks supplemented on Bacopa would have better learning rates in terms of audio visual, visual learning tasks. They're getting better scores on rapid visual information processing. They have better spatial working memory. So coming in from a skeptic's perspective, can there be placebo effects? Of course. But if you're actually looking at the data over a statistically significant sample size, that's where it's, like I think, interesting from a product perspective. So let's talk about some of the other self-experimentation that you've been yeah. doing that I referred to at the start. And of course, fasting is uh, a big part of yes. that. And the fact that, I don't know whether it's 100% of the people that work with you, but a, a, a large proportion of yes. you will fast every week and you'll do it simultaneously. Yeah. Uh, why do you do that? And, and what have you learned through it? Yeah, it's, it's become really... Uh, core part of our company culture now, really the genesis of fasting was in the last few years, a, a large body of science and literature being published around fasting as interesting for longevity, as interesting for cognitive performance. When we first looked at the data, I was like, hmm, this is pretty interesting data, but we're not overweight. We're like relatively, actually relatively fit. Like I grew up always fairly on the thinner side. So like the notion of like not eating for like 36 hours or six hours at a time seemed so foreign to me. But at biohackers at heart, we're like, okay, let's give this a shot. And the first couple of times it was challenging because again, our bodies are not necessarily adapted to fasting after we're just constantly being fed all the time. And it really became like a cultural thing where it was uh, fun to do it together. And also we felt really productive fasting together. And that became the, the core of 
of the WeFast community where it was just Nutribox, human employees at the time, just fasting together. I do understand what you're, you're saying in yeah. terms of the effects of fasting. I know how challenging it is. Right. And I understand, although I'd like you to elaborate when you say it's fun to right. do it as a group of people, because I know people listening to this who haven't ever fasted and, and don't really feel like they want to try it because it seems so awful right. to, to do because they love their food. What's fun about fasting? A, a couple parts. One, there's actually a subjective mental state that you reach that, that, that's like very productive, very monk-like, if you will, where uh, things seem a little bit sharper and not, not really dis- distracted. Right. So I think there's like legitimately like a mental state that you get into while you're fasting. And it's actually explained by how the, the body reacts under a fasted state. So, And as, as I understand yeah. it, or maybe even don't understand it, it is not fully fathomed out what at a biochemical level is happening, but it's, sure. it's understood to be something to do with the process of going into ketosis. sustaining ketosis. Yes. But exactly what's going on there, and I've spoken to a number of experts in the field, they haven't quite worked it out that the sequence of events that, that lead to that yeah. extremely alert state of mind yeah. feeling yeah. that uh, is, is clearly so beneficial to people. Yeah, no, our understanding there is that, which is, like, so ketosis is the swapping of how our bodies generate energy, mm-hmm. right? So glycolysis, which is what we normally are, are in, especially on a Western carbohydrate heavy diet, constantly use carbohydrates, sugar, back and forth. Uh, we don't really ever generate ketones. But if you're fasting, you just drain all your glycogen, your stored glucose, your body is forced to produce these ketones. And some of the interesting results there are that ketones are 28% more efficient per unit oxygen in terms of output. And sort of, yes, I, I think there's, I think there's multiple things happening when one is fasting. But one of the most interesting parts of that is elevated ketone levels, which we look at as like a supercharged fuel, essentially, for the brain, which you think is one of the key drivers of why we get into this mental state. And what is better understood is that, of course, there are different reactions to the length of time that right. you're fasting for, whether right. it's 36 hours, as you do frequently, but right. I know you've done longer fasts than that as well. Yeah. I, I've done the periodic five-day fast, right. which isn't a complete 100% fast. It isn't a water diet, but it's a very limited calories for a sustained period of time, which, right. which certainly puts you into ketosis after 24, 36 hours' right. time. And then you sustain that. And it, right. it actually, and from my experience, that mental agility actually gets better yep. during the five days. Yeah. So that by day four or five, not only do you actually feel great, you don't feel hungry anymore, right. and you feel like you can could continue. Right. Whether it's good to continue for all sorts of other metabolic reasons is debatable. Right. Maybe five days is, is a good time to stay in that state. And I think right. that, that is one of the great unknowns that is 36 hours better than five days or 72 hours, as some people yep. do. And I think there's, there's much research to be done on that. I agree. I agree. I think that's why the different communities that, you know, we fast is, is awesome because people are trading their own tips and, and, and their own experiments, essentially, with, with themselves and how to best structure their fasting protocols for different outcomes. And I think it's an interesting community because I think you can really divide it into two groups. You have half the people there that are trying to lose weight or overcome some sort of metabolic syndromes. You know, they want to reduce their insulin load if they're type 2 diabetic, for example, is a pretty somewhat common use case there. And on the other hand, you have more biohacker 
style people that are in generally considered normal, healthy states and want to improve and become even better, more productive. So it's like a very interesting dynamic how people are developing different protocols and experimenting with them for different use cases. Mm. And that's really my interest in it yeah. because there's so much happening right. at, at a base uh, biochemical level right. when you're fasting. And, and you've talked about ketones, ketone bodies. There's hormone levels, there's IGF-1, yep. there's a huge amount of research being done in that area and the implications for lower IGF-1 as you, right. as you age, perhaps implications for the killer diseases of right. old age, is diabetes, heart disease, and, and crucially cancer right. as well. So th- there's so much going on. And a lot of it is focused on the long term yep. and longevity. But what clearly strikes me about what you're doing and your, your guys here in this office, you're all young you're all fit looking and you know you don't fall into that category of of needing to lose weight it's, sure. it's a much yeah. deeper reason to do this so yep. clearly longevity and a longer sense of well-being is uppermost in your minds yeah um one way i think i like to think about this is that i think everyone will be fasting in the next couple of years think about working out the notion that, of exercise that's quite a bold statement well think about exercise in the beginnings of the 20th century the notion of going to the gym to like run on a treadmill would have seemed in completely insane. You're already doing physical labor as a farmer or as a factory, you know, laborer. You're you know on your feet and, and, and lifting things. And as our productivity as the economy moved more and more from physical labor to intellectual labor, right? We basically didn't have any more physical labor in our daily routines. So if you actually look at when gyms when companies like Nike really emerged is really in the last 20, 30 years, we have corporate gyms where people were like, hey, working out exercise is a good thing if it's sensible for any healthy person to do. We essentially had to reinstall exercise back into our daily routines. And I see the next wave of that with fasting. So if you think about how we evolved, we went through feast and famine cycles all the time. We would dip into our glycogen reserves, get into ketosis, hunt, and replete our glycogen back up and down. So I think it's... And that's because the fasted state of mind actually makes you a better hunter. Yes. Yeah. And I think that's one of the interesting things where humans are actually one of the few species that are really good at using ketones. So we evolved to be able to sustain feast and famine cycles and actually perform, as, as you said, better while fasted. But if you look at today in our society... We're not just like not because obviously certain parts of the world, people can't even eat enough. But in like first world countries, we're not just like have way more calories than needed. You you walk to every other Silicon Valley office, you get like free snacks all the time, paid for by the company and breakfast, lunch, dinner. So instead of not even just not having the opportunity to fast, like you are overfed. So I think in the same way that we look at we need to reinstall exercise back in our daily routines. We're going to need to reinstall fasting into our daily routines. That is, I mean, I say that's quite a bold statement because I know of so many people who refuse to even contemplate the idea (laughs) of fasting. What do you think is going to happen to persuade them? I think a lot of it was or is the social stigma around it. And I think that's why the community aspect of WeFast is so powerful, where people think it's so foreign, but... It's an artificial construct of culture why we are, have three meals a day. Again, if you look at how food consumption evolved over time, I mean, Romans had you know one big lunch as their primary meal of the day. Different cultures and societies in Asia typically had two meals a day. So the notion of 
uh, three meal a day system really seems to be an artifact of industrialization, of, 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 of being a factory laborer, where you had kind of two main shifts of work and you would have one meal to power the first shift, a break in the middle to power the second shift, and you're tired and you want to go home, you eat another the third meal. And it, do, do you, are you one of these people, and I'll admit that I am, that sees food as fuel? I think it's, I would say it's both. Principally. Yeah, I think, yeah, food is an input that power, that, that, that the human body needs to, to, to function. Uh, and, then, and then occasionally to be enjoyed socially. Yeah. But no, not necessarily yeah. three I, times I, a day. Yeah, I, I would say that I love eating fine meals. I mean, I think it's definitely like art and, and craftsmanship to like a really nice three Michelin star meal. Uh, and of course, love to partake in that. So I think it's like, there's definitely like a pleasurable aspect of dining and food. It's a huge part of human culture. And that will always remain. Not every meal that we're eating is fine dining experience, right? Like most of the meals that we do have are fuel to power through. So I think it's like, okay, let's redefine culture to really be optimal for what these things are. Like and, let's call them a spade a spade. And, it, and, and so therefore, if those regular meals, the fuel-inspired meals, could come in a pill or in a box, so be it. Well, this is how I feel. For certain meals of the day. Sure. And then enjoy those fine dining meals, right. the evening with friends or weekend. Right. That's something you look forward to. But it's not something that, again, from my perspective, needs to be repeated multiple times a day. Right. Because, it, A, it takes up a lot of time. <laughs> it's quite laborious sometimes to think about right. planning for and executing those right. meals. and. There's so much more to be done. And that comes back to the productivity that you talked about right. as a community and as, as a company right. that you enjoy. And it's a, it's a big part of modern day life. Yeah. And that sometimes the mundane aspect of having to eat will get into way. <laughs> this is a, it's sometimes yeah. a controversial view and, and not particularly popular. But, but I don't know. I don't, I don't, what you yeah, said of changing attitudes yeah. and getting everyone fasting. It's the kind of hurdle and attitude change that probably needs to be made yeah well just i don't know i don't understand the the visceral reaction against it it just seems like like let's let's like look at i don't think people look at their fast food meal as like a awesome experience right like so I, it's like it's this interesting like gut reaction that i think that's part of what we want to do it's like let's help reprogram culture and society in a way that we think is more optimal for us if you just look at Again, look at the stats of human performance. We're probably the weakest cohort of humans in the history of humanity. If you look at Alzheimer rates, diabetes rates, obesity rates, like we kind of suck right now. So let's build a culture that moves, that bends it back in a more positive direction. Now, one thing you did, and I, I referred to it a few moments ago, is you, you've done a seven-day fast. Yes. And you did it as a big experiment yes. with, with other people as well. Yes. You're wearing sensors. You yes. were measuring various biomarkers. Yes. So just tell me about that experience and what you learned from it. So as we started growing out the fasting community, more and more people wanted to experiment with like longer fasts, five-day, seven-day fasts. So again, this is you know essentially 168 hours without any calories, just just water, sometimes black tea or a black coffee if, if you really need a crutch. And, you know, we decided as part of like the new year in January, uh, we would have sort of a seven-day fast to kick off 2017. And over 100 plus people from the WeFast community joined us, the entire company tried to do a seven-day fast actually. And then in the company, four of us made it through out of, I think, eight people we tried at the time. I was one of the folks that made it through all seven days four out of eight of you made it yes 
Um, 50% success rate. Yeah. And then everyone else was able to do around 60 to 72 hours of fasting before they, they broke and they were sending me pictures of their In-N-Out burgers. I'm like, <laughs> come on. That's me. <laughs> um, but that was an interesting experience. And I Let think, me just ask quickly, ask, yeah. did you take medical advice before you did that? Well, one of the people that did it with us was our clinical lead, Dr. Emmanuel Lamb. So he's... He's an internal medicine practitioner at the VA hospital. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, and I think... So you had a doctor working with you. Yeah. So I think, I think one, the, yeah. I, mean, I think at this point, after fasting for, what, you know, one and a half, almost two years now, I mean, I think it's something that we understand, not just from a practical level, but going and, and talking to some of the best people in the world. Like, I understand, like, the biochemistry, you know, physiology of a lot of it as well now. And I will just say this now, and I'm going to repeat it at the end as well, that fasting is not for everyone. Yeah. Fasting can be dangerous. Yes. If pregnant women, if you have diabetes, if you have other medical conditions, the, the medical advice is that you do not right. fast. And that you should always consult your doctor. Yeah. Have medical advice if you're thinking about doing something like this. You, you, you've got to be careful. Yeah. No, I think that's a good disclaimer. Just, you know, if you're underweight, that is, if, you, if you're already malnutrition, like of don't course. fast, right? So I think very young like, people yeah. and very old people, yeah. again, advise not to do it. Right. Yeah, I would yeah, definitely like look uh, and, and just really understand what you're doing. I think with everything. Right? Yeah, I mean, for everyone, um, just yeah. see your doctor, talk about it. Right. So I think it was interesting to, I think just from that experience, it was interesting to just, I think what you mentioned that after day two, day three, it actually gets easier and like the, the keto head state is actually just very very sharp i remember during that week i had just flown back from new zealand in japan so i was like jet lagged but i was super productive that week and didn't need that much sleep where like i would be functioning very well on four or five hours of sleep a night and and powered through like a really productive week so it was interesting from a subjective level and then i think it's also very interesting from a biometric level where we're looking at glucose and ketones as you know as they evolved through that seven day fast and was there a when you looked at the the data that yeah. you managed to gather was there a common thread you and the others that succeeded through the seven days yeah so essentially our resting glucose definitely improved a lot over that seven day period so basically you know one of the key biometrics that I think a lot of people are looking at now is your fasted blood sugar levels. And obviously a high fasted blood sugar level is type two diabetes. So that's something that we we care a lot about in terms of optimizing our metabolism. Uh, And then also just tracking our ketone levels. So one of the things that is interesting to us is typically higher ketone levels associated with like that sort of interesting headspace that we get ourselves into. So it was interesting from a data perspective to see how quickly each of our bodies were generating ketones and how hard it is to elevate or sustain different levels of ketones. Is this something you plan to do again or on a regular basis? Yeah. So seven days was getting kind of long. It, it literally kind of got boring to like not have any meals after like day five. You're like, you have so much time. I'm so uh, used to the culture, <laughs> the eating culture. Yeah. I think, you know, probably what I imagine it would be Every quarter, do extended maybe like three day fast, maybe like annual seven day fast. I mean, we're freaking out the rhythm, and I think like a lot of people in our we fast community want to do like monthly extended fasts. And this is in addition to the weekly fast, the weekly thirty six yeah. hour fast. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're, you're still continuing to do yep. that. Yep. So I fasted on Tuesday, 
broke my fast one you know, yesterday morning. Today's Thursday. Yeah. And how long have you been doing that on a weekly basis? Weekly basis, uh, one and a half years now. Do you work out during that time? How has it affected you, you physically in terms of your physical endurance yes. and your ability to grow muscle and that kind yeah. of thing? So that's, again, the, always the criticism that people say, well, what if I can't go to the gym? Right. So I actually get some of my best workouts. Well, for my 36-hour weekly routine, I will do a heavy workout at the end of the fasted period and then break my fast with generally a ketogenic, like low-carb, high-fat meal, medium-protein meal right after the workout. And, and you feel good during that heavy yeah. workout? There's no lightheadedness or anything like that? No. I, I think no. I, I think my body has adapted to be able to use ketones very efficiently. And there's interesting data that show that on these extended fasts, human growth hormone actually elevates as you go deeper and deeper into a fast, which makes sense from an evolutionary perspective because growth hormone not only helps grow muscles from like an athletic perspective, but also prevents protein loss. So obviously your body wants to retain functional tissue and, and, and burn off you know, fat. So I try to take advantage of high growth hormone during the fasts and then stack them with like meals right at the end when your body is ready to absorb as much nutrition as possible. So it, actually like talking about just like body composition we were doing uh, i did a three-month like trial essentially where my body fat percentage went from 17.1 percent body fat using a dexa scan so like a very just uh it's one of the most sophisticated ways yeah to one of the most sophisticated body yeah, it's very it's not like it's so i think just looking it's at like an, an x-ray of your entire body yeah essentially yeah you get you sit in a tube and then like wait 10 minutes and you get you can see like my abs are like 12 percent body fat and my butt has a little bit higher percent and so you literally get a, a subsection of each component of your body and in the, in the body fat ratio there so my body fat dropped from 17.1 percent to 16 percent and i gained four and a half pounds of lean muscle tissue so in terms of like gaining and, and controlling muscle and, and being active i think it, it like just from the data itself it showed that it was clearly moving it in the in the direction that you know is, is, is better and i think in in that time period was also the seven day fast too so weekly 36-hour fast plus a seven-day fast within that three-month period shifted that body composition. It's interesting you mentioned having a, a scan there. One of the limiting factors in, in this kind of experimentation, right. especially self-experimentation, is the cost of it. Yeah. Because all these tests, these whether it's a blood test or a right. sophisticated scan, they right. don't come cheap. Right. And I, I guess if you're anything like me, you want to do a lot. Yeah. You want to test in all sorts yeah, it's of, all, it takes of different a lot of time, ways. Yeah. And it takes a lot of time right. and a lot of investment. So yeah. I guess you've got to be fairly shrewd about what you go for and what you decide to maintain yeah. on an ongoing basis yeah. that, that's actually going to be meaningful. Yeah. But at the same time, it, it's practical and yeah. feasible financially to do. Yeah, I think that's an awesome part of doing what I'm doing. I'm sort of professionally doing this in, in, in some ways. I really look at our experimenting at the bleeding edge. Hopefully we can, one of the things that we're looking at is that we get, people ask us all the time, what should we be doing? What should we be doing? And it's like, okay, let's figure out everything that's possibly interesting in this space and like figure out like the most cheap cost-effective things that we can like focus on and then you can like get more sophisticated as you will so i think like fasting it's free essentially you probably save money because you're not eating as much useless calories so i think it really biohacking can expand from 
free to you can nerd out with all the crazy equipment that you want. I think that's why it's such a broad encompassing community, which is awesome. Uh, let's just talk a little bit about the WeFast community. You and I sat down and had actually had breakfast together yeah. about six or nine months ago. And this right. is one of your breakfasts. This was yes. on a, a Wednesday morning after a 36-hour fast right. that you do. You've actually changed things a little bit uh, as the community has been growing. Yes. So the community has really evolved out of just like different phases, right? So again, when we first started breaking fast, it was literally like it was hard to fast as a company because we were not experienced fasters. It sucked to like not eat for 36, 60 hours. So we were like, okay, let's have a meal at the end to celebrate like doing the fast properly. But it also brings into play the social aspect. The of social food aspect. We talked about yes. before that you, yes, you are denying yourself yeah. for 36 hours, albeit for positive right. effect. But there is a good side to eating and there's nothing better than having a uh, breaking a fast with a yes. group of like-minded friends. Yes. And that's when we realized that this was interesting from a culture perspective how can we change how people think about food consumption and it grew from like like a company commiserate thing commiseration activity to hey this is actually something that i think can positively affect people in our community people started joining and then people from outside of san francisco where we're based wanted to join and now we have like different chapters if you will so one in ohio people are organizing in new york to, to organize their own breakfast and we're kind of sort of slowing down the pace of our breakfast because when it got big and time intensive for like the entire company to like do a breakfast together every single week and, and talk with a bunch of folks but i think it's something that we're still evolving as something that how do we keep this sustainable because i think it's a very core part of our mission as a community hub and just educating people on 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 how to best experiment with fasting i think it's a great community hub and actually we talked about possibly starting something similar to this in in los angeles right. which is maybe something through anyone listening to this if uh, yeah perhaps it's something we could start partner up with peter <laughs> partner up let's partner up yeah. whatever you even if you're just interested in fasting and and trying it at a fairly low-key level perhaps yeah. uh, i i certainly got a lot out of meeting you and the other people that turned up to that breakfast right. from all different walks of life and that right. was one of the most interesting things different ages yeah. male female young Old, all to getting together and swapping their experiences, their right. life experiences with fasting. It would be good to to do something like that. Yeah. I live in Los Angeles, so it would be, be nice to get together with some like-minded people. Uh, you live in San Francisco. You yes. live close to Silicon Valley. And I did want to ask you about this growing fascination into fasting and mm-hmm. body improvement and longevity by the Silicon Valley community. Yep. And we've got some very wealthy people in the city of San Francisco and, and further down the valley pouring money into research. W- what do you think has, has prompted this? W- where has the great impetus come for Silicon Valley to get into the business of longevity? Yeah, I think there's a couple aspects, a couple factors. I think one, what I was alluding to earlier, I think f- human enhancement longevity has been always sort of associated with you know quackery snake oil like something that's like not a very serious inquiry now the biology and also the sensors allow us to actually treat this from like an engineering perspective so really when i talk about biohacking we really need to be rigorous on the output tracking the biometric side i think that's what distinguishes the current efforts from sort of general wellness goals that humans have for the start of history have always wanted to live forever. But now we can actually have quantified 
data on how we're you know improving our biometrics. So, so, so basically, the biology and technology is really now I think at the maturity where we can actually attack it from a rigorous perspective. And then two, I think if you just look at the GDP of the country, right? Healthcare is like thirty percent of the economy, and I think Silicon Valley is becoming ever more ambitious to attack more and more industries. You know, Mark Andreessen. Uh, one of our investors has this famous line, software is eating the world. Well, we see that happening with just our social media, how we communicate. And obviously, we're going into changing how people trans- do transportation. People are building all sorts of things that are encroaching upon all aspects of our lives. So I think when Silicon Valley is looking at this space, it's like, okay, this is a huge part of the economy, healthcare or enhancing our, our, our health that's not very sophisticated in terms of applying the latest technology you know, how can we best enter and one, make the status quo better, but two, make money off of it, right? Like obviously VCs care about making money. And I think the notion of living forever is something that almost anyone would pay a lot of money for. So I think just, it makes sense. It's like one of the core human instincts, I would say of, of humans. We've always wanted to search for the fountain of youth, like Cortez trying to find the fountain of youth, invading like, you know, South America, right? People have always, all these stories about it. So Maybe it's this time in this era that we can actually make serious efforts into it. And you've nicely opened the door to what was going to be my final question. How yeah. do you view your own longevity? What, what, how do you feel about growing old and the way that you live your life? Do you have certain aspirations? I think it's sad when people age. It's sad to see people lose function I mean, I think we've all had experience with like grandparents and you see them deteriorate over time. I think it's a fact of life that we've, I think, gotten used to over every generation living, being born and dying. But that isn't necessarily a physical, universally defined truth that you know, one must you know, go on this trajectory of becoming weaker and weaker and dying. And increasingly, aging is considered a disease. A disease. Yeah. And that we should be focusing on that as opposed to the individual diseases that define very old age yeah. and ultimately death. Yeah. So I think, so I, yeah, I think, I personally think it's like just sad and something that I don't want to happen to me. So, yeah, I, I mean, I think, again, like, are we going to live forever? I hope so. Yeah. Um, but I think, obviously, we need to... It's a fun headline, I yeah. think, eternal life and living yeah. forever. I think, realistically, I'm, in, I'm one of those who will say, yes, it would be fun, just like you. Right. But it's not going to happen in my lifetime, right. in air quotes. But to live as long as possible, yes, absolutely. Yeah. want to do that. Yeah, and, life and is be, wonderful, and right? And to be fit and healthy. Yeah, I think it's like we've, we've adopted like this... I think I read someone calling like a death cult, like like human size really has like has sort of glorified the, the transition of generations as like a positive thing because, well, I think it's mainly because like people think, don't think it's escapable. So we have to rationalize why it's like a positive thing. But I think like just experiencing life is, is like a positive thing. Like we should be doing everything we can to delay that outcome. Jeff, it's been a fascinating conversation. It's great to see you again. All the best with all your new projects. Yes. Thanks so much. Thanks, Peter. Jeffrey Wu. And just before we go, a reminder that on this podcast, as I said, we don't give out medical advice. We share, we discuss ideas. But if you're considering adopting a new diet, especially fasting, which can be dangerous, you should always consult your doctor. 
first. And that's it for this episode. The Llama Podcast is a Right Angles production. You can contact us through our website at llamapodcast.com and you can follow us on Facebook and Twitter at Llama Podcast. From this beautiful city by the bay, San Francisco, goodbye and thanks for listening. Thank you.